We're looking at the subject this morning of the disarmament and the defeat of Satan found in Colossians uh, chapter 2. The first thing you'll note in your bulletin outline, though, I'm harking back to where we started in this whole study, the prophecy of Genesis 3 verse 15, which is a promise. Here it is. God is speaking to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity, that's hatred, between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. And he, the woman's offspring, will crush your head. And you will strike his heel. Genesis 3, verse 15. There's a promise God made when the first sin came into our humanity. God says, I'm going to correct it and here's my correction. And there we have that verse. What we have been doing is tracing this tension between the crucifixion covenant, God preparing his son for the cross and victory, and the crucifixion conspiracy through biblical history. In short, God has determined that his son Jesus would go to the cross and come out, not the victim, but the victor. That is, his heel crushing the serpent's head. Everybody knows that's... That's how you kill a serpent. That's how you kill a snake. If you're out in the garden, you whack it with a shovel, right? If you see some poisonous snake or something of that nature. Because if you can whack its head, you will kill that snake. While admitting, God admitting, that the serpent, the Satan, would strike Jesus' heel. This word for strike, here is a Hebrew word, means to grasp onto, to injure or to bruise. Uh, King James Version says bruise, which is a good translation. I think it's God's way of saying that Satan was going to be successful in causing Jesus pain and sorrow. I mean, death, after all, is not pleasant. It's painful for anyone. But especially if the means of death is going to be crucifixion. But there's a remedial aspect to Jesus' pain. That is to say, there's something grand which his pain accomplished. Hebrews 12 verse 2 puts it this way. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down At the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12 verse 2. That's a strange verse, don't you think? I mean, what could possibly be joyful for Jesus in contemplating the cross? Again, the writer of Hebrews says, You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. That's an important phrase. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Hebrews 2, verses 7 through 10. So, 
you get from the writer of Hebrews that there's an anticipation here of what the cross is going to accomplish. And therein is the joy. You have to look past the nails. You have to look past the whipping, the crown of thorns, the spittle, the cross itself. You have to look past that to its accomplishment. Paul, speaking of Jesus, says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. Titus 2, verse 14. Or Peter writes, He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Strange play on words there. Wounds and healing. 1 Peter 2, verse 24. And then in 1 Peter 3, verse 8, the apostle categorically states, listen to this, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? To bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. So, bottom line, Jesus' cross work was powerful. It reached down to us in our lowest degradation. It paid the law's demands. What's the law's demand? The soul that sins is going to die. That's the punishment. And with that payment so pure, so powerful, Peter says, not silver, not gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish, without defect. First Peter chapter 1. Verse 19, that was the great payment. And may I say this is the ultimate price of your freedom as a believer and my freedom as a believer. There's nothing more costly, there's nothing more precious than that God would accept than that of his own son's atoning blood. My son will die instead of you. My son will die in place of you if you will have him. And this is why Jesus said from his cross... It is finished. Whoa, it is finished. And it's why the writer of Hebrews states, But when this priest, speaking of Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down. You know something? You you sit down when your work is done, right? I mean, that's... That's the colloquialism of it all. He sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Hebrews 10 verses 12 through 14. When I come in from working on the yard and I'm all sweaty and tired. I will often say to Donna, oh, I got to sit down. I just got to sit down. She'll come home from a hard day of work and she says, I just need to sit down for a while. The idea is that you've accomplished something. You've been out working hard. And now you sit down, you can take your leisure, you can take your rest. How insulting and encumbered with misunderstanding are all those religions of the world which teach that salvation is by man's own good works which the scriptures flatly deny, saying this, 
The fool says in his heart, there's no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Answer, all have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. All that from Psalm 14, the first three verses. And Paul quotes that from Romans in Romans chapter 3. None good, none righteous, none are seeking after God. So why would we come up with a religion that says, well, you're going to be saved or you're going to go to heaven because you're good. Here's God's evaluation of you and me. None good, none righteous, none seeking him. God is seeking his people, but we aren't seeking him. It's all one-sided when you think about it that way. But there was one good man who came along after Adam's rebellion and sin. Jesus asked the young man who questioned him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Mark 10, verse 18, Jesus put his finger right on it, didn't he? Why, why would, are you trying to flatter me? Why would you call me good? Don't you know there's none good but God? Well, Jesus was ma- making a point here. And that being true, Jesus would later claim for himself, for himself, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father. And I laid down my life for the sheep. John 10, verse 11 and following. The only, may I put it this way, the only good work acceptable to God the Father that had atoning quality, atoning forgiveness attached to it, was the good work of the good shepherd in his self-sacrifice for the sins of his sheep. And what does Jesus say about his sheep? My sheep, listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. John 10, 27 and 28. Listen to that again. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them. And they follow me. Question. Are you listening? Are you listening? Are you obeying the voice of Jesus as he speaks from the written word? You say you love Jesus, okay, okay. You love Jesus. Here is Jesus' own definition. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. John 14, verse 21. Let us not simply be people who parrot the teachings of the church and use God words to make us feel good about the state of our souls. When the reality is that we have more time for sin in our lives 
than obedience, or more time for secular pursuits than for godly pursuits. Jesus died for his people, yes, but he died to purchase for himself a people whose new song confesses, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood purchased men. Wow. Purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign. They will reign on the earth. Revelation 5, verse 9 and 10. Yeah, the cross of Christ, the work of Christ, is to purchase people for God. Where does he find them? He finds them in the kingdom of darkness. He finds them in the world of sinners. That's where he found you. That's where he found me. That's where he finds every Christian. We weren't Christians. We weren't born Christians. There's no heritage that comes that way. We are blessed to be in Christian homes where people, our parents or grandparents or whatever, taught us the things of God. But even if you don't have that privilege, God does reach down into people's lives, brings a witness along, a, a gospel track, a friend, a co-worker, whatever, that gives the gospel. And we hear that. And it's the sword of the Spirit of God. And He strikes our hearts with it. And He kills us dead in terms of our selfishness and sinfulness. And grants us grace through faith and repentance. And He purchases us. He buys us out of the kingdom of darkness. And then translates us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Praise His name. And that's how we became Christians in no other way. He sought us, we didn't seek him. He found us, we didn't find him. And it's a great, great uh, blessing and great grace that that's occurred. Now, all of this work of Jesus is part and parcel of Jesus, point two in your outline, his disarmament of the powers and the authorities. Now, What powers, what authorities? Well, Paul answers in the twin epistle to Colossians, which is Ephesians. Here it is, chapter 6 of Ephesians in verse 12. Our struggle, writes Paul, is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Isn't that interesting? Paul is saying, you know, your enemy is not that next door neighbor that hates your guts because you're a Christian. We all have had experiences like that. Your enemy are people you can't see, powers you can't see. Rulers, authorities, powers of dark, the dark world, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's your enemy. Now, there are such things as evil people. I'm not putting that down. There are such things as flesh and blood people whose whole bent in life is to live immorally in defiance of God, in defiance of his law. There's evil people out. They delight in sin. They promote wickedness. Paul writes, although they know, they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, 
but also approve of those who practice them. So it's a good old boys club. Uh, They love evil. And that's what they practice. And that's what they promote. And you'd be a fool to think that, eh, no, everybody's born good. And, you know, just give them a break. You have your faults. They have their faults. Now, there are such things as evil people. But, but, the driving force in such people is Satan himself and his demonic cohorts who fuel the fires of rebellion through temptation and a false sense in the wicked, a false sense of security. Let me read it for you. The psalmist is writing here and he says, How long will the wicked, O Lord, how long will the wicked be jubilant? You know anybody like that? Happy, wicked people. <laughs> Happy in their sin. Jubilant. So the psalmist is asking this question of God, you know? How, how long is this going to be? He goes on. They pour out arrogant words. All the evildoers are full of boasting. They crush your people, O Lord. They oppress your inheritance. They slay the widow and the alien. They murder the fatherless. That would be the orphans, right? They say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob pays no heed. Psalm 94, verses 3 through 7. They're saying, God does not see what we're doing. And what is more, if he does see, he doesn't care. That's quite an indictment to bring against God. And so the psalmist is saying, you know, they're rejoicing in their wickedness and they're rejoicing over the fact, at least in their thinking, that you're not seeing this. And if you do see it, you don't care. So how long is this going to go on? That's the first problem with the wicked, is they have this wrong assessment about God, and they're jubilant in their wickedness. Here's the second thing. Solomon writes, by the way, excellent study we're having in Ecclesiastes. You need to be out on Sunday morning as Doug is is breaking open to us uh, that wonderful uh, scripture. But here's what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, The hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked man commits a hundred crimes and still lives a long time, writes Solomon, I know that it will go better with God-fearing men who are reverent before God. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 11 and 12. Now here, Solomon touches on one of the major flaws in the thinking of the wicked. And the flaw goes something like this. I got away with my crime. I did such and such, and nothing bad happened to me. I'm saying that's a false sense of security. And Solomon is saying that too. Because God is patient, because God is long-suffering, should not be construed to mean God is blind, God is deaf, 
God doesn't care how I live my life. God has forgotten. God can't or God won't touch me. When I was growing up, I heard this atheist say, If there is a God, let him strike me dead right here. Nothing happens. So I said, See? No God. I thought then and I think now. God is bigger than to slap a little boy because of his arrogance. Doesn't mean he won't slap the big boy in the day of judgment. In that same psalm we read, Psalm 94, in which the wicked were boasting that God pays no attention to their evil deeds, the psalmist goes on to say, same psalm, He, God, will repay them for their sins and destroy them for their wickedness. The Lord our God will destroy them. Psalm 94, verse 23. Paul in the New Testament puts it this way to us as Christians. Do not take revenge, my friends. Leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Romans 12 and verse 19. And he's quoting from the Old Testament. So Paul says, let's just remember... You're not to take your own revenge. You're not to avenge the evil that's done to you. Grin and bear. Judgment, dealing with people that are wicked towards you, is God's business, not yours. You know, sometimes, brethren, it looks like evil is winning out over God and righteousness. I mean, we have to admit that. It looks like it. Satan is called a prince by Jesus a number of times to acknowledge that he at least carries with him the title and the facade of royalty. But compared to Jesus, he's a fake. He is a tin horn facsimile thereof who is good at creating the illusion of strength and power, but who in the end has been disarmed Of his powers, says our text here in Colossians. This uh, word disarmed in Greek, I know you just guys love Greek. (laughs) It's a compound word. Apec duomai. You're going to remember that, right? Apec duomai. Put them together. Apec means off. And ek duo means to strip or divest. Hence to strip off. To strip away. We would probably use um, maybe dismantle. Something like that. To strip away the abilities of the spiritual forces to continue their damning work. That's what Jesus does at the cross. I want you to notice how he does use the title prince for Satan. I want you to notice how Jesus uses the title prince for Satan. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. John 12 verse 31. These are sayings of Christ the night of his crucifixion. As he anticipates the cross, he's saying, 
Ah, now the prince, this prince of this world is going to be driven out. Or again, he says to his disciples, I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming, and he has no hold on me. John 14, verse 30, also said that night. He has no hold. He might be a prince, okay, of this world, but he has no hold on me. And then, and then, with regard to Jesus sending the Holy Spirit back to his church, to his people upon his ascension, it's a promise. He says that the work of the Holy Spirit will be to judge the world And he says, in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Again, the night of his betrayal, he says this, John 16, verse 11. All these statements about Satan being the prince are couched within his anticipation of the cross. The prince of this world now stands condemned. And the now, that word now, refers to Jesus' victory at the cross, which was just hours away. Here again, we hear in Jesus' words his note of victory, not victim, but victory, not defeat at the cross. Things are coming to a head. The conspiracy will obtain its goal to strike the heel of Messiah. But God's covenant of salvation will be the result. I asked a number of our pastor friends in the fellowship this question. Did Satan know that the cross would be his doom? I mean, he's pushing, pushing, pushing. If so, why would he be so eager to push Jesus towards the cross? Why enter Judas to empower betrayal, as we studied a few weeks ago? I mean, isn't he therefore fighting against his own victory? Isn't he, in the end, promoting the plan of God? Good question to ask, don't you think? Did he know? Well, the best answer I got was from Pastor Tucker down there in Missouri. Satan is evil, and yes, he knew, but his pride would not let him say, it's over. That's a good answer. That's the right answer. Let me give it to you from the scriptures. In the text in the Revelation describing the expulsion of Satan from heaven, John gives us this explanation for Satan's ferocious and bloodthirsty rage. He writes, there was war in heaven. You know, normally think of heaven as a place of war ground. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough. They lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels along with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now? 
have come. The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth, woe to the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because, here it is, because he knows that his time is short. Revelation 12, verses 7 through 12. Now you may not think that several millennium is short. (laughs) But compared to eternity, a few thousand years is short. Short. From the day the archangel expelled Satan and his forces from heaven, Satan knew he was a defeated challenge. How could he not know? An angel, another angel, not even God himself, threw him out of heaven. And that knowledge of defeat inflamed him. It says, filled with fury. Verse 17, same chapter. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman. Either a reference to Mary in giving birth to the Christ child or a reference to Israel. Same thing. And went off. He was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Revelation 12, verse 17. Yeah, he knows the skull and crossbones is written over him. He's doomed. And it infuriates him. And this is why you and I and all within the spiritual church, the body of Christ, are constantly in battle fatigues, rustling in hand-to-hand personal combat against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Ephesians 6 verse 12. That's why the Palatier family in Massachusetts is under persecution. That's why the woman in Sudan is under persecution. Well, enraged or not, (laughs) it is a losing battle for Satan, not for us. How do we win? (laughs) Well, we read it in Revelation. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Revelation 12, verse 11. Our victory, brethren, is obtained through our champion. I'm sure you've all seen a movie depicting the Middle Ages in which they had jousting competitions, right, between individuals. Well, sometimes these were simply sporting events. At other times, these jousts were taken very seriously to settle disputes. 
Not simply between individuals, but even between kingdoms. In other words, instead of all the soldiers of both nations showing up on the battlefield, each nation in dispute would choose a champion to fight for their side. Now the closest thing we have to this in the Bible is the Philistines' challenge to Israel. Let me read it for you. It's from 1 Samuel 17. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's about 125 pounds. Our soldiers in Afghanistan have to often bear a backpack of 70 pounds. So think of bearing something 125 pounds. On his legs were bronze greaves, that's those kind of protective coverings, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, you know, the shuttle on a, on a weaving machine. And its iron point weighed 600 shekels, that's about 15 pounds. His shield bearer went ahead of him, and Goliath stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Now he's talking about the whole army. Yeah, why are you guys all out here on this battle line? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? King Saul, of course. Choose a man, he's saying, choose a champion, and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him... You will become our subject and you will serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And the scripture says this taunt went on for 40 days and 40 nights. How long was Jesus in the wilderness temptation? Forty days, forty nights, doing battle with Satan. First Samuel 17, verses 4 through 10. Well, you know the story. When the teenager David heard this, he distinguished himself as Israel's champion when no one else would. And here was his answer to Goliath. I love it. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin. He's all equipped with battle armament. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword, it's not by spear that the Lord says, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. First Samuel 17, verse 45 and 
this little pipsqueak teenager <laughs> is out there defying this nine-foot giant. That must have looked so silly. Well, it did look silly to Goliath. He goes on to ridicule even more. That's this idea of a champion. You know how the story ends. He does go out there and with a stone, not a sword, not a spear, not a javelin, he smacks Goliath in the forehead, knocks him out, and then cuts his head off with his own sword, with the giant's own sword. Now, on a far grander scale, get, get into the picture now. On a far grander scale and involving a far more serious confrontation, Christ, our champion, went head-to-head, toe-to-toe with Satan over the prize of your soul and mine. The battle was the Lord's. The battleground was not an army of good angels against bad angels, nor of good men fighting against the wiles of the devil. No, it was God's Son, the champion, representing God's interests and those of the people of God versus Satan and all the forces of hell at his disposal. And the dragon lost. The dragon lost. Now it brings us then to the meaning of the brass snake in the wilderness. Israel's gripe against God's provision and the fiery serpents was this. They, the Israelites, spoke against God. I'm reading scripture. And against Moses. And they said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? You remember the Exodus. Why did you do that? You brought us out here in the desert to die. There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. And the people came to Moses and said, "We, We sinned. When we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a snake. Put it on a pole. And anyone who has bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. And then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Numbers 21, verses 5 through 9. Now we've already noted many times that Satan is addressed in Scripture as a snake. He's a snake. It was the serpent in Eden who deceived Eve and successfully caused her to sin. He was called that ancient serpent, that devil, or Satan that leads the whole world astray, whom Michael expelled from heaven. Chapter 12, verse 9. He's a snake, a serpent. He's got this deadly poison, this deadly venom. It is not, therefore, coincidental that in punishment for Israel's defiance of God and Moses, Moses being their deliverer, their champion, God permitted serpents to bite them with poisonous venom, which caused many to die. 
But when they came to Moses, when they came confessing their sin, when they came seeking forgiveness, God had Moses erect a bronze snake on a pole high enough for all in the camp to see, if they would, if they would, and if they so choose, to look and live. In his conversation with Nicodemus in the New Testament, Jesus gave the spiritual meaning to this account in Numbers. And here's what he said to Nicodemus. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, he's talking about his cross, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. John 3, verse 14 and 15. In the account in Numbers, what were the people rebelling against? I'll read to you again. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. King James Version says, this light bread. Referring to manna. You know about that. Well, what about this manna? This light bread. Well, he never had to work for manna. It appeared like dew on the ground each morning. They just went out and collected it in baskets. And in John 6, Jesus gave the true meaning of manna. Here's what he says. Jesus said to his audience, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gave you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life to the world. John 6, 32 and 33. Verse 51. I am the living bread, he says, that came down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This, is, this bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Brethren, this is the manna. This is the manna the Israelites were griping about in the desert. And so God gave them something to truly gripe about. The sting of Satan's fiery and destructive bite. Refusing the bread of life, many of them died by the serpent's bite. But upon repentance, Moses erected a brass snake, a non-animated facsimile of the threat of death that could not bite them any longer and could no longer bring about their destruction. And if they would but look at this lifeless snake immobilized, rendered harmless by God himself, their sins would be forgiven, the poison neutralized, and they would live. Wow. And so I say secondly here that Jesus on his cross disarmed, yes, he rendered harmless like the brass snake, and he triumphed over them over Satan and his deadly cohorts, Ephesians 6 and verse 12. 
The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him. Destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Hebrews 2. Verses 14 through 17. Paul puts it this way. Where, O death, is your sting? Where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55 and following. Let me put it this way. Jesus in his cross work sucked the poison out of Satan's fangs. He disarmed him. He rendered the fatality of death harmless. Yeah, we all die, but not all die in fear any longer. The fear is dissipated in our champion who stomped his heel on Satan's head and crushed his sting. who gave us victory over the power of the grave. And if our sins are atoned for, if Jesus paid the price the law of God requires, if the wages of sin is death, if he paid that and he did, then there's nothing on the docket for which Satan can claim us or condemn us as his own. We're not his own anymore. This is why we read in the Revelation... Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. Oh, yeah. Why? For the accuser of our brothers, that's Satan, who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him. Praise God. By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. That's the woman in Sudan, by the way. Recant, recant your Christianity or we're going to kill you. Revelation 12, verse 10 and 11. Very serious question I ask you this morning. Are you afraid to die? Are you afraid to die? Do you know why you are afraid to die? It is because the serpent has bitten you with his venom of evil and it's coursing through your veins as I speak. You know you are a sinner. You know you have despised God's manna from heaven. You've kicked, you've fought, you've griped, you've complained against God and his goodness like Israel of old. All of your life you've done this. And you can't help yourself. This is who you are. 
And there's only one antidote to neutralize and render harmless Satan's fear hold that he has on you. And it's the champion of salvation. Lifted high on a cross, paying for our sins, paying for your sins, if you will have him. If you will look alone at him and live. I charge you this morning is look and live. Look and live. Look and live. Christ has won the battle. His victory accrues to all. May I say his victory accrues to any who dares to trust him. That's what it means to look to him. To believe in him. Not just believe in that he existed. Anybody would be a fool who didn't believe that. But to trust him. Just like Israel trusted little David to go out against Goliath. Because little David said the battle is not with sword and spear. The battle belongs to God. And he will give me the victory over you. God has done that in the spiritual realm. He has given us victory over our spiritual enemies which are way bigger than you. You need a champion. There's only one. Praise Jesus. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this this text in Colossians. You disarmed. You stripped away the powers of the evil one. You did more than that. You destroyed him. You condemned him. I pray that we'll see that. Lord, we thank you for your sacrifice. To gain this victory meant that you had to forfeit your life, which you gladly did for the sake of your people. That's why you're the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The wolves come. The lions come against the sheep. And they come for to steal, Jesus says, or to maim or to kill. But the good shepherd is there. And he's going to do everything within his power to save those sheep. And everything within his power is sufficient. Help us to trust you. Are we afraid to die? Then, Lord, dissipate our fear. Grant us faith. Are we worried about our sin? Oh, Lord, yes. Then grant us repentance so that we might turn away from our sin and plead with you on the mercy of Jesus to be forgiving and to cleanse us. What great salvation this is. Thank you, dear Christ. We pray in your name with thanksgiving. Amen.